Welcome to First Graft. I'm Heidi James and this is a podcast where I share the ups and downs, the staggers and sprints as I write my latest novel, The Sound Mirror. This is chapter three and we're going to be talking about all kinds of things today. But most importantly, I bought a microphone. Can you hear the difference? I'm hoping you can. I certainly can. I can even hear things that are going on all the way downstairs. It's so sensitive. So it's going to probably take a little while to get to grips with it. But I love it because it a, it looks pretty pretty fancy, and um, it means I'm really committing to this, which sounds silly. I'm an adult. I shouldn't need toys to commit to something, but, you know, sometimes you do. I've got the gear. Now I need to get the idea. Um, we have a special guest joining us later today, which I'm really excited about, and we're going to be talking some more about getting stuck, procrastination, getting through it, endless cups of tea and coffee... And, um, yeah, the graft. So how are you? What are you up to? Tell me what you're reading. Tell me what you're listening to. What are you watching? What are you loving? I want to hear it. It's nice to feel connected to one another. I'm feeling very privileged because today joining me on the podcast is Ariel Khan, the author of Raising Sparks, published by Bloomers Books. He's incredible. Listen in. It's so exciting. You're my first guest. Very exciting. Yeah. How are you doing? How's everything going? I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm very happy to have uh, my first novel, Raising Sparks, out in the world. Uh, hearing from readers about how it went and thought it'd be lovely to chat with you and uh, explore how I got here and hopefully help some other folk too. It's a honestly, it's a it's a cracker. It's beautiful. Um, all the review, I read reviews and think, yep, you're absolutely spot on. It really is just so uplifting, but also expensive and experiment. I just, yeah, it's beautiful. And sometimes I find stories are really exciting and lovely, but the prose doesn't work for me. That you know, I'm I like um, not ornamental, but I like I like people to play with language. And you've done both. Um, tell me a little bit more about raising sparks for those of the people listeners who haven't read it yet sure so raising sparks is i suppose a kind of magical realist novel set in one middle east um it's about a sort of feisty heroine teenager who grows up in this very narrow um orthodox jewish community in jerusalem um, runs away from home falls in with a cult a mystical cult that it's got lots of great food in because i love cooking and this character, there's a kind of love story strand. There's a Russian immigrant who's following her across the country. But it's, it's really about um, Marco, my main character's kind of journey of self-discovery um, in which the places that the story set, so Jerusalem, Safed and Jaffa are characters as much as the main people. That's incredible. So that, I love that, that location and even food and all the details of life are woven in and as much a part of it as the characters. It's That's so wonderful. I think that's why it's so rich. Um, and you do just feel so uh, like you're in that world, which is such an incredible achievement, I think. So how long did this incredible book take you to write? Please don't say six um, months. <laughs> no, no, it did take a fair while. Um, 
it started life um, about eight years ago um, when uh, my wife was pregnant with our second child, and uh, we thought we went on a little writing retreat to um, Suffolk, a little cottage, because we thought once the offspring arrives, be a little less writing time for both of us. Um, and I was really stuck. Um, and sitting in the garden under an apple tree right by a sort of lovely brick wall. And then the cat walked along the top of the wall um, and I was just watching it kind of mute and uh, it sort of changed so that the scenery around me changed. Suddenly it was this young girl following it through this food market in Jerusalem. Um, so that was the seed of the story. And I thought, well, who's this girl? Who's it going to be? I didn't know if it was going to be a short story or something a bit longer. Uh-huh. Um, and then once uh, I realized it was going to be a novel, I panicked because I'd only written short things before. Uh-huh. And uh, so I did a short course on kind of plotting. I think it was called Taming the Monster with Leonie Ross, a wonderful Scottish Jamaican novelist. And that was at the City Lit in London. Uh-huh. And then I started teaching at Roehampton, where Leonie was, and she said, well, what happened with that novel? I said, oh, I just don't have time to do very much on it, do a little bit here and there. She said, well, you know, you could actually do it as a PhD, and I'd love to supervise you. So I sort of jumped up and down for a few minutes, and so the first version of, of this novel um, was actually part of my PhD at Roehampton. So that was brilliant, having you know, a kind of nurturing editor, having deadlines, all the things that normally you'd have, you know, with a, with a publisher. Mm. But, um, so that's, did you, that was the kind of first odyssey of, the, of Raising Sparks. Yeah. Um, did you find that um, the PhD sort of, and, and it shouldn't, we shouldn't have to do this, but I think when you're busy, you're, you know, you're working, you've got children, your family, for me, I wrote my novel Wounding as part of my PhD and I found it legitimised the writer. It's sort of, not that anyone else was, you know, would not give me permission, but it felt like I could take the time to do it because it was for a PhD. So it, it almost gave, I gave myself permission more than I would, say, just to sit and write my novel. Did, did, did that, was that the same for you or was that just me being Absolutely. Silly? No, that really resonates with me. It's almost about, a lot of it is about giving yourself permission and somehow... My own writing was always much harder thing to give permission. You know, it's kind of all about enabling students and other yeah, writers. Yeah. But exactly, you know, having that framework and kind of sense of, well, actually, you know, I'm supposed to do this. It's official now. Really gave gave the kind of spur to the writing. But also, there's a pleasure and also, I think, a privilege of kind of doing creative practice in a university context and mm-hmm. also then got to think about the ideas around the story and because the main character is a capitalist then you know I, I'd studied in the previous life to be a rabbi I was sort of revisiting and joining the dots between these different parts of myself so that was really satisfying as well yeah I can imagine I mean, that must be wonderful and that's one of the things that I've loved about the book is that there's I'm learning so much and obviously all novels you're learning something about other humans which I think is so um, valuable but in your novel what I love is that you're also learning without it being didactic which is a tough thing to do so much about another world that I don't know about not you know I'm raised to be a Roman Catholic so I just found that so wonderful so it must be lovely for you to sort of be able to bring all of that to the book. Thanks very much. I mean, in a way, it was a real journey of discovery for me too. And what 
one of the things I love as a reader is when a writer shows me a new world, a world that I don't know mm. so much about. And um, so having someone, you know, my first reader is Leonie, someone who's really outside this culture, became yeah. a kind of a conversation, but also a kind of way of understanding what, you know, part of my own heritage meant for, you know, from a kind of feminist perspective. Mm. That's interesting. That's so, so it sort of brought you anew back into... So it's uh, facing it from a different angle, perhaps, for yourself even. Exactly, yeah. So it's kind of a, almost kind of reclaiming it or, or kind of making it mean something to, to who I was, you know, as a person and a writer mm. while I was working on it. Yeah, well, that makes sense. So how many drafts did you end up writing? Well, um, I think it went through six drafts as part of the... PhD process each time. It was a bit like, um, I felt a bit like I had a torch and I was going through the woods and I could see a little bit ahead. Yes. Uh, and even though I'd written a plan, the story kept on going in yeah. a different direction. Um, and then after I, I finished the PhD, um, Andrew Crumey, the Scottish writer who was my like examiner, my visor, mm. he gave me his annotated copy and he said, look, you know, you really should do a bit more with this um, so other people get to read it. That's um, a very generous thing so to I, do, isn't it? I kind of did another seventh draft, kind of went through, um, thought about it, and actually changed the ending a little bit from the version that I'd done for my PhD. Uh-huh. Um, and then I had an amazing <laughs> stroke of uh, good fortune. I entered a writing competition called uh, Pulp Idol, run by Wow Fester, great group based out of the library in, in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. It's a writing competition for first-time writers, which I really encourage people to submit to. Um, and I got to the, the final there, and one of the judges, um, Kevin Duffy from Blue News, who you know, who publishes you as well, um, he really liked this. It was just the first chapter that I kind of worked on and got to hear. And he, and, uh, he said, is it finished? And I said, well, I think so. So um, I sent off a hard copy to his editor, and then he wrote to me on my birthday to say they wanted to publish me, which was like the best birthday present oh, ever. Oh, yeah. Um, and Lynn, his uh, editor that I worked with, she said, well, I've got two small, well, two comments, right, about the things that you might want to fix in your in this. One is the colour of the cat, um, because the cat I'd seen in Suffolk, she, as a cat owner and lover, she said, well, you wouldn't see a cat that colour in, in the Middle East. So that was helpful. Um, but also she said that um, the ending was strange, that it went away from the main characters, that it, it followed this, the, the death of an older character who doesn't actually exist in the current draft anymore. And I realised that my, my um, father-in-law I was very close to um, was dying while I was finishing my PhD and that a lot of my sort of grief and mourning for him went into my PhD. And so, and almost away from the, these two characters, I hadn't even realised that. So, mm. having someone outside see it, you know, so I sort of peeled that stuff away. Uh, and there was a new ending, sort of waiting, hiding inside. So, I guess that's seven and a half drafts. That's incredible. So, yeah, Lynn is incredible, actually. Um, she has an eye for detail, unerring eye for detail, doesn't she? Um Things like you say, the colour yeah. of a cat. In, yeah, it's an but, amazing experience to work with someone like yeah, that. Yeah, it's... Who kind uh, of treats your work with such respect, but it's also very 
confidence saying, yeah. you know, this needs... And it, it's so fascinating, posting. I think, with your work, with one's work, that you, we do, like you say, you, you sort of, there, your work, the PhD was imbued with your mourning and the, the process of grief and that work of grief. And sometimes it does take someone to step back and say, yes, but this is a novel. And obviously we both do that for students and things, but sometimes it's very hard with your own, isn't it? And it, it, I sometimes see that, that my work is being haunted by other things. And then it takes someone else to say, yes, but I don't see why that's there. <laughs> sort of, it, it's hard sometimes to see your work. I think you're too close to it. Would you agree? Yes, I think you, you, I felt like I was much too close to it to see some of those things. It was really liberating. Almost again, like, like we were talking earlier about the kind of permission to write. There's mm. also sometimes the permission to cut things and let things go. And actually, in the Pulp Idol competition, um, Kevin asked me, said, well, what... You know, I was sort of on the stage and, and I, I'd read a bit of Raging Sparks, which was kind of terrifying and exciting. Mm. He said, well, what would you say if I asked you to cut part of the novel that you really loved? I said, well, you know, it de- depends why, but that's your job. You know, so I think there's also that sort of, it's actually a shared thing, although it's something that I had worked on and invested. I had such a, I guess, a, a kind of respect and confidence in Lynn, just mm. as I had before with Leonie, and it, it felt actually really special having these different but, but very strong women working on this story that was all about a woman's empowerment. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, the thing that, you're, that, that also strikes me when you, you talk about your, your work being haunted is that there's a kind of a love story in the background of this um, story of Raising Sparks. And yeah. also, um, I think... I sometimes struggled with, you know, the, the process of, of writing it. And write, I think it, it went through so many drafts because um, when I was studying, um, in, basically between so high school and, and uni, I studied for three years in Israel and set up like a writing group with my study partner. To You know, we were both studying to be rabbis, this guy from the States, and he was madly in love with his best friend. And a lot of our creative writing groups turned into kind of therapy sessions about, you know, that he should really tell her how he feels. Um, and then when I came back to England, I had a letter from him. And I was just walking to the um, cafe in university. And somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, you studied in Israel with Matt, didn't you? So he's this guy called Matt Eisenfeld. And um, I said, yes. Um, and she said, oh, go back to your room and listen to the news. And both he and um, Sarah, so his best friend, they were both killed in one of the first bus bombings in Jerusalem. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Which was on Jaffa Road, like, 96. And uh, it just, I had nowhere, the letter that I was holding was from him basically saying, you know, they were engaged, they were going to Georgia, and he was going to kind of propose to her. Um, and I just thought, these are two amazing people that had been that, that had disappeared um and i didn't have anywhere to put my feelings about it either and I, the, the love story in raising sparks i mean it's not these two 
people, but it's really inspired by the things that they loved and, and cared about, you know, whether that's kind of mysticism or, you know, good food, but also that dialogue between different cultures. So when when I realized that it was going to actually get published, I wrote to their parents in the States and said, you know, you, you don't know me, but, you know, I knew your, your children and that they meant a lot to me and that in a way that this story is a kind of homage to what might have been to, to the things that I miss about them. And, and um, So when I got my very first copies, I sent them to to, to um, Matt and Sarah's parents. That, you know, it was an amazing, actually, uh, amazing sort of healing journey, yeah. but also a sense that actually part of, you know, these people who, who meant so much and who could have made, I think, such a difference that I'm still able to share something of, you know, and celebrate something of what they what they meant and who they were without, you know, my characters actually being those people. Does that, does that make sense? That makes absolute... That's, I mean, firstly, I'm so sorry that, you know, that's a terrible loss, but what a beautiful memorial in a way. And I, I think you're absolutely right for me. I think those essences of people or that meaning and value they have for you when it makes its way into any work of art is the most extraordinary um, other life, if you like. Um, it's a, an otherworldliness. And it just, it's beautiful. I, it, that makes total sense. I love that. that That's so meaningful. Their, their parents must have been absolutely delighted and heartbroken and moved immeasurably by, by your gift that's so generous that's so lovely and they live on isn't that beautiful thank you exactly that's why i'm kind of hoping that um through this story people get to meet something of these people i mean i think often we create characters and they're animated by parts of people that we know mm. i think if it you know in in this story as you say that uh, i feel like people are actually meeting um the best things that I remember about people that I care about, and I think it's really important, whatever kinds of character you're writing, to care to care about them. Um, but this this meant I sort of cared about them in a different way. Yes. Um, but I think for that reason as well, it was really important to have somebody say yes. But would the characters do this, and to still, you know, do do things like try to go shopping as my character? But they really they really became uh, kind of part of me one of the things that I found as I started dreaming as the characters which was very helpful when I got this up yeah. occasionally and I really I came to really trust that kind of dreams part of me you know maybe that unconscious part the, the kind of walking away when I got stuck mm. and, and just seeing what happened um, almost a bit like you know when you simmer something you're cooking to let the flavour come out you just have to at some point if you keep stirring it kind of that gets in the way you just have to leave it <laughs> yeah yes yeah. steve fimbo said something uh messaged me the other, other week about i think we're always working on our work even when we think we're not and i agree i think it's for me it's the same that something is working away in my unconscious subconscious what it, i'm I always forget which one that is um and it returns a, a, an answer almost if i if i'm patient my, do you know my imagination will return what I'm looking for I think it's funny when you say about the dreaming as your characters I, I have that 
um, or I'll sort of think about how they speak or speak like them when I'm writing. And uh, I always think if a psychiatrist heard some of the things I say about being possessed by my character, or <laughs> they would think there was something quite horribly wrong with me. <laughs> but um, I think that's how we do it. There's lots of lots exactly. of people I know do it. Like, you know, you sort of like an actor, I suppose, inhabiting a character, but. It really is, exactly. I think that's really good. I mean, I did drive my wife crazy. I remember at one stage we were shopping and I was staying in front of these peppers for ages and she's like, well, what's the problem? And I said, well, you know, would, Mark, would she choose these peppers or these peppers? She said, well, <laughs> we need to get the shopping done. That's so brilliant. I guess you can, you can push a bit far, but as you say, it's, there is a sense of kind of performing, of entering into, you know, into other, but in a really pleasurable way mm. because often like say I said well, I, there, there were things that I didn't know about the characters or that you know I didn't understand fully and I just kept learning more they kept growing so that that was a new discovery for me yeah um, yeah as that, a writer yeah that's wonderful so do you have an inner critic and are you able I mean I suppose we all do but are you able to sort of silence them and you know stick a tape over their mouth and sit them in the back of your mind and think no I'm not listening or you know, do you have to battle with it a bit? I think it, it, it really depends. I definitely have an inner critic. I think it's part of every writer. But yeah, in a way, growing up in quite a, you know, sort of a patriarchal culture where, you know, it wasn't, certainly wasn't a given that I, this is what I would be doing. Mm. Um, just internalising this kind of a quite judging voice. Um so I think one thing I've found really helpful is to, to get away from home, you know, because one thing that, that this critic does is saying, well, this isn't useful, this isn't practical, what you're doing, why don't you fold the laundry, why don't you do some cooking, right? You know, so if I get away from the house, um, it's like I can't do all the, the you know, the, the practical, responsible things. Um, so I often go into a cafe or to a library space or sometimes work on a train, something where, where mm. there's life around me, Um and I find that helps sort of drown out sometimes that, that inner voice. But also in an opposite direction, sometimes just walking, um, going somewhere quiet. You know, I love I love sitting under trees. I love flowing water. There are things that I suppose take me out and away from that stuff, but also make me feel that I guess the stillness that I sometimes need to write. So, so I guess you, you know, sometimes I think there are different different solutions for different ways in which this kind of judging inner critic um, manifests yeah but um those are the ways that i've found for for working and how how about you what do you what do you how do you get away from i I literally put a i picture the voice and stick a gag like a tape over it and then a head like a pillowcase and visualize shoving it in the corner of my brain and then I and, and and sort of say, no, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. I have enough. I, I have a right. I'm allowed to do this, even if it's crap, even if it's crap. And I find that frees me. I always think, just make a bloody mess. Who cares? Because for me, it's perfectionism. Yeah. It must be great. It's like, who says it has to be great? And anyway, it, nothing's great the first go. And I know that logically. I know yeah. that. But it's sometimes knowing and feeling are two different things, I think. Do you know what I mean? Like, you can logic. I do, and I think, yeah. So, you are a busy person, so you possibly don't procrastinate, but uh, 
we, I like to ask people, what are your procrastination tactics? How do you procrastinate? Are you, are you asking if I procrastinate or how I procrastinate? I'm asking both, really, because it may well be that you're, you know, I have a, another writer friend who said, I don't, I'm busy. If I do it, I do it. I was like, okay. <laughs> so do you procrastinate? And if you do, how? Definitely. I mean, there are definitely days where even if I've done all those things I was saying to silence in a critic, you know, I've gone for a walk or a run and I've kind of, I'm sitting in the cafe and just you know, nothing, nothing's coming. And, and, you know, it's often a day, a day after I've had a really productive day. Yeah. But not always. But I find sometimes, you know, if, if I have a really good writing day, the next day, you know, I feel like a kind of squeezed out dishcloth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes then I just have to do something really mindless. Uh, one of my sort of favorite procrastinations is get, going to see... Um, Marvel movies or, or, you know, superhero movies yeah. or, or, you know, something, sometimes things that are a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more nurturing, but just to, just to immerse myself in, in some, you know, some fantastic spectacle. Um, another, another thing that, that helps in that way is, you know, going to a gallery. So I guess experiencing other, other kinds of creativity mm-hmm. that have so it's quite immersive. Yeah. And that, that I find that that's one, because I feel like it's a procrastination thing where often then something something happens in that space as well. Um, yeah. Another sort of more, more um, domestic thing is I love, as I say, you were talking about it in the story, but I love um, cooking. Mm-hmm. And I find that's something that I can get really absorbed in and feel like, oh, I'm, look, I'm, yeah, I'm making something for somebody else. Yeah. My, you know, my writing's not going so well. So I'm kind of okay because I find on those, on those days where writing's not going so well or it feels like it's not so good, um, that the judge gets really loud. So I mm-hmm. can sort of say, well, look, as you, exactly as you were saying, it's, you know, it's never good the first time round or, you know, I can't really judge it. Let's go and, and make something and then come back to it. Um, so I guess those are my my different uh, procrastination, but I guess in a way they're they're about enabling as well. Yeah, that, um, I, I think yeah that that what you're describing is something that's nourishing, and you're taking space, and actually in giving yourself space, I think you can work harder, and things come together later. Do you know what I mean? As a like when I procrastinate, it's sometimes I am dithering because and doing not anything productive because I'm almost nervous of failure do you know, you know so. yeah I think there is a kind of rightly performance anxiety absolutely of, mm. oh you know this chapter isn't working I don't know why this character is about to go go on this particular journey or what's this other character who's coming what do they mean what are they for or, you know I can't get something in their, in their voice quite right so yeah sometimes that procrastination is a kind of it's like you're worrying away at something yeah because you you, it's at least for me the the end thing is unknown um so the process they're going to be i sometimes feel it's a bit like a dance you know when you're dancing you kind of move closer to someone move closer to the story but also sometimes you have to move further away so Mm -hmm. I, i guess having gone through this process or journey at least with one novel i learning to trust it and so if, if you know it seems like I'm giggling or I'm not sure what's going to happen next so I just say well that's okay yeah you know, it's kind of giving yourself permission not to know 
everything or, or not to necessarily know how to fix something in that moment yeah um, I think that's a really good point it's the trusting isn't it and just turn up I think sometimes turn up right but trust don't think like I sometimes write lots and lots of notes this is what I've noticed I gather notes fragments of scenes for for a while and then I suddenly join them up and write the novel very quickly and that's just my process so I've stopped resisting it but for a while I felt like that was illegitimate which is ridiculous I've written three novels so that's silly it seems to work do you know what I mean like I think there's a like you say there's a trusting learning to trust your own process so what are you writing now I don't want to just uh, it's it's just a glimmer <laughs> I'm just starting to, to to write it in a different way actually because it's got a, it's a historical novel a novel with different um, strands to it um, exciting so, again kind of so I think it looks like three sort of different um, time frames uh-huh. so this time I'm a bit like you were saying we're kind of making lots of notes for, for the different characters in different periods still not you know figuring out how am I going to move from one story to another what's going to connect them so it's a kind of new a new challenge oh wow um, sounds a lot like what I'm doing actually mine's three different narratives in different times all connecting up so oh wow we definitely need to kind of uh, definitely need to really hear how, that, how that's going and yeah. how it's working for you because it feels like a different, uh, very different process from anything I've written before. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? Well, I'm excited to read that. And um, how far in are you? Oh, very early stages. I mean, it's something that I thought about and had some brief notes for before I started Raising Sparks. Mm-hmm. Um, because, I mean... So they're just like little sketches and notes, and it's kind of I feel like it's sort of growing gradually, organically. Um, little, but uh, I I'm not writing, writing. I, that's what I tell myself anyway. I'm just kind of making notes, and as you say, seeing as you know, some of the notes join up or they take me in a new direction. So, so it's growing, and I guess it's like having little seed beds. Yeah. That's a lovely, I love that image. I think sometimes as well for me is just love the process because that's what I always loved, writing. And then the uh, the sort of getting published and worrying about what happens afterwards tarnished it for a little while in that I worried that, oh, is this going to be any good? And actually I'm learning just to love the process again. And then it's whatever happens, happens. Do you know what I mean? Like um, falling back in love with it. Yeah, yeah, I think that is so vital. You know, we, we're talking, we've been talking a lot about kind of the effort and the struggle and the judge, and mm. the, but actually there's such a joy in kind of getting words down and, and discovering things and, and making something new. It's such a huge pleasure. As you say, I, I really enjoyed that process and, it, you know, there, there was a stage where I thought about raising sparks, you know, I had lo- lots of rejections for it and I just thought, okay, well, this one won't get published. Maybe it'll be the next one. And although obviously it's it's a joy to have it out there, um, there it was something really fulfilling about that process, about you know gradually refining something, make you know seeing it take shape, and and also surprise me. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. I I'm, I love the book, um, and I'm so excited to read the new one as and when it comes. Thank you so much for chatting with me. My first. Thank you. Extra special guest. 
Um, I'll let you get on with your work. Great, thanks. Good luck to you too. Look forward to hearing how your story develops too. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Ariel. Thanks so much to Ariel for coming on and chatting with me. And thanks to you guys for listening. Um, this episode was recorded, produced, written, birthed, etc. by me, Heidi James. Um, I love to hear from you, so do connect with me on Facebook, the First Graft Facebook page, or on Twitter, Heidi Pearl James, or Instagram. Um, it's always nice to hear what you're up to, what you're writing, any problems you're having, how you procrastinate, or tell me your joys and your breakthroughs. I love to hear that too. I think that's always really encouraging. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, it's really helpful and helps other people find us if you rate and review on iTunes um, and share as much as you can. And thanks very much. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Ta-ta for now. Here's to the writing.